during the Apostle Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, he made good use of his time by generating letters to the Christian communities of his missionary journeys. While Paul had not actually visited Colossae, in many ways they were under his care, his shepherding care. And so he wrote to them and he shared his concerns over some things that were going on that he had heard about in Colossae. You can tell by the nature of this letter from which our passage of scripture is taken today that he has great love for these ones who are at a distance from him. He expresses in the second chapter, which we uh, did not get to in the reading, he expresses, for I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those in Laodicea, for all who have not seen me face to face. I want their hearts to be encouraged and united in love so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he goes on to explain a little bit further. He says, I am saying this so that no one may deceive you with plausible arguments. Don't we live in a world that is deceived with plausible arguments? It seems that every other day there's somebody that comes with what seems to be a plausible argument and takes our minds down a path that it need not go. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. Paul had a beautiful love for these early Christians that were giving themselves to Christ and to the ministry of Christ. Paul was in prison and he was perhaps under house arrest. They were preserving him and uh, the dignity of what he was trying to do, although he was an affront uh, not only to those who were uh, elite within the temple, he was a, an affront to Rome itself by what he was attempting to do. And so he was under confinement, in confinement, perhaps with his legs and his arms in shackles. We do not know the exact situation uh, when he was in the process of writing this letter, but there is little question that he would have had to have some assistance in the process of not only writing this letter, but also sending it by a courier to those that were the intended recipients. And Timothy, he shares at the very first of this letter, uh, was that person who was not only a protege, but an assistant to help him carry this task out. He writes in the very first verse of the letter of Paul to the Colossians, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So he was assisted by uh, this young protege of his. Paul's letters contained not only 
and early church polity, but much more importantly, they, they held within them the nuances of Paul's theology, what he thought about God and what he thought about Christ. We are just two weeks into our confirmation class meetings and it is always a delightful time for me to be able to engage uh, younger members of this faith community and conversations about God. Oh, we, we talk about the scripture and how they were formed, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, we talk about the United Methodist Church and its structure, its history. But the things that, that so inspire me are when our conversations I turn around to talk about the very nature of who God is in Christ. I was visiting with a, a friend. Uh, this has been quite a few years ago now. He uh, was the Episcopal rector. Um, and he, he uh, told me, he said, he said, I'm meeting with our confirmation class and the bishop is supposed to visit us this week. I said, the bishop is going to visit you? He said every year he visits us when it's time for confirmation. He comes and checks out our classes. And actually, he said he is the one who confirms those that are moving through confirmation for us. He travels around to all of the Episcopal churches in the area and does this as a part of, of uh, his, his act as a bishop. And uh, he, he said, if you heard the one about the bishop that came uh, to the confirmation class, uh, to check on them and as he came in he uh, thought I'll give them just a little quiz over the things that they've been studying that I know that they've been studying and so he asked the question he said uh, can you tell me about the Trinity and one young girl with a lisp uh, said uh, Ithamithari and he said he said not understanding what she said he said uh, could you say that again um, and she said, it's a mythery. And uh, he said, I don't understand. And she responded, you're not supposed to understand. It's a mythery. I have remembered that story for years. And it is a beautiful understanding of who Christ is to embrace the mystery. Did you hear me read that just a few moments ago? Have the knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself. Even so, in the midst of life, mystery, even about Christ, beckons description, beckons description. And Paul introduces these thoughts to them of the supremacy of Christ, knowing that if he does not give some explanation to this mystery, they will be pulled off in any direction to believe anything about Christ. And so he begins to describe that Christ is this invisible, this image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God 
was pleased to dwell. Can you hear the longing of Paul's heart? And can you sense the closeness of Timothy leaning in to understand what Paul was trying to say to the church at Colossae? Can you sense the broadness of Paul's theology to be able to look very pointedly at Christ, but to see the larger picture of what was going on in Christ, that God was in Christ. But the most beautiful thing here is that Jesus is the description of who God is and what God is about. John's gospel, uh, when John uh, takes to pen to write about the beginnings of Jesus, he says it this way, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. I think that John, the writer of the gospel, and Paul, this writer of the epistles, they understood each other. Even though their lives were in very different places and circumstances, they understood the core of what it means to look at Jesus and to see the larger picture of what is going on. It is something that should entrance us as we think about the nature of who Jesus is. This season of the coronavirus, there are many online innovations that have occurred that go beyond my ability to understand have you seen any of the online choirs that have uh, been uh, put on YouTube particularly um, I'm fascinated with that with all of the pictures of the members of the choir that are uh, in different frames and are singing uh, that beautiful anthem or hymn um, that they are sharing uh, I know that there was there was one choir uh, that was put together recently but by the denomination, the United Methodist denomination, and, and people sent in their recordings from all over, literally all over the planet. Here at Pittman Park, at our recent charge conference back in November, we had a virtual choir. And actually, Lisa, you were a part of that, were you not? and were, was singing with a group of others that were there on the screen. And it's fascinating that, that this steals your heart to, to be able to look and to see and to express in song and music what your heart wants to express. This passage of Scripture, it may not have occurred to you because the way it's written in English in this uh, sentence and paragraph form it does not portray what is much more evident in the original Greek. And I understand that, that this is a hymn. These words that were read this morning 
are written as a hymn and are meant to be sung. When you read the words, when we read together, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. These are words that would have been sung back in Paul's day. These are words that would have been sung in the early church. How beautiful a thing is that for us to imagine. For these thoughts beckon celebration. This theology is the same theology that cannot be contained that is a part of our celebrations throughout the church year. Already, even before Lent has begun, my heart is pulled towards singing those words that Charles Wesley put down on paper some 250 years ago. And how he wrote for all of us the opportunity to stand up on Sunday morning and to sing, Christ the Lord is risen today. Doesn't that move you just to think about the tune that goes with it? The tune embeds itself into our mind. We cannot think of the words, lest we at the same time are thinking of the tune. And we cannot think of the tune without thinking of the words. It is not only a beautiful teaching device, it is a gift truly from God for us to be able to remember and to embrace these words of musical expression. My mother died six years ago now, and before her death, her memory was slipping away. In fact, she had Alzheimer's, and she was able to carry on in the last couple of years of her life, very limited conversation, even with those who she knew best in the family. We would engage her and talk, but she was very limited on how she could respond to us. But if we, any of us, near her began to sing the words of a hymn, she could sing every stanza with us. An amazing thing that somehow that music and those words were embedded so deep within her mind and within her spirit that she was able to remember them without even remembering somehow of her own volition. Above Rio de Janeiro on the crest of a hill, there is a 100-foot statue that is appropriately named Christ the Redeemer. It is a picture of Christ with his arms extended as this one who truly does redeem the world by his offering himself in total subjection to whatever the world feels that it must 
impress upon him. And you remember the story of his giving himself on the cross. His outstretched arms bigger than life in that enormous statue. A fascinatingly bold statement to the world that Christ cannot be contained in some six-foot frame of a human being, but that the very nature of who Jesus is is far beyond what we could ever know by simply looking at him face to face. Paul goes beyond stating that Christ is even just the redeemer of the world. Some of us believe that we have reached the pinnacle of the pinnacle of description of who Christ is by embracing the idea that he is the redeemer of us all. And that is an important, very critically important for us to know. But Paul and John in his description, in their descriptions of Jesus, call us to see him as who he is, God himself. And in that mystery, to know that in some way, he has always been present, even from the beginning of the cosmos, of all of the worlds. Barbara Brown Taylor wrote a book entitled The Luminous Web in which she saw into all of creation the present echo of Christ's being. If we allow ourselves, we begin to see the divine in all aspects of life. Do you think that the disciples who were on the boat in the middle of a sea that was so disturbed by the winds that the waves were beginning to swamp that small vessel. Do you think that they thought to themselves when Jesus stood up in the boat and calmed the waters and the winds, do you not think that they looked at Jesus from a much larger perspective? Who is this one? who has given himself so openly to the world. Do you remember the story of Joseph and Mary carrying Jesus to the temple for his Brit Mila? As they came for that time of dedication and as they sacrificed their gifts and offerings in celebration of God's care in Jesus's life, it's interesting as Luke expresses this to remember that Simeon, this very righteous and devout man who lived looking for what Luke says was the consolation of Israel, 
who had spent all of his days coming to the temple and praying that God would make him aware, not let him die until he saw, till he saw this one who would be given of God in order to redeem all of the world, beginning with Israel. And Simeon, when he saw Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus into the temple, knew immediately that the child Jesus was that one, the Messiah. And how Simeon took him in his arms and began to sing as an expression. And there was one other that was there in the temple with them. Do you remember the story of Anna? Do you remember the story of how this 84-year-old woman who had been in the temple living there for most of her life She had been widowed very early on and she took up residence there in the temple. And when she saw Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus in, she too knew and was able to see beyond this little child what God was doing in making himself present in the world. And it says that she praised God in seeing that Jesus was there for the redemption of Jerusalem. When Christ is first in everything for us, we begin to see the world differently. When Christ is first in everything, we can look at pine trees and see that there are crosses at the tips of the branches We can look at dogwoods and see that the blossoms have crosses etched into their being. We can look at anything and see that Christ is truly embedded in all of creation. For as Paul believed and as John believed, Christ was in the beginning. From the very beginning, Christ has been in all and through all. As we come together for this precious meal, we remember that our communion is a connection with Christ. I had a friend tell me one day, we were having lunch together, and I said to him, it's so special to have lunch with you. And he looked at me and he said, I've come to believe that every meal is a sacrament. Until he said that, I had not, that had not even entered my mind. For me, I was coming to have lunch with a friend. For him... He was sitting down knowing that Christ too was somehow at the table. As we think about Christ, let us remember that he is first in everything.